With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It is the Anfield app, Neil Atkinson, Paul Cope, Ian Ryan and Craig Hannon with you for the next, oh, I'd say about an hour or so to talk about Lucas's departure uh, and how everybody's both feeling and reflecting back upon the 10 years that he's had at the club. Uh, we talked at length, uh, me and Paul Cope and Ben Johnson and Glenn Price, about centre midfielders uh, last uh, Friday. Uh, and we're going to talk at length about forwards and strikers uh, this week as well and how Liverpool sort of shape up at the moment, combined with all the rumours that are ongoing. And then we're going to, in general, sort of summarise the transfer story, speculation, the fact that it looks like Liverpool are probably going to buy Andy Robertson. All of that is to come in the next hour or so. But we'll start with Lucas Labour and we'll start with Paul Cope and... Andy, uh, I did a video with Andy Heaton before and he said something really interesting that I'd sort of forgotten, which is that 10 years ago, it, it was a very different Premier League for a Brazilian player to come into. That was the first thing I took, you know, as soon as Andy said that, I thought, you know, he's right. Mm. This was before, you know, there weren't lists and lists of Brazilian players who come to English football and become successful. It ha- just hadn't happened in the way in which it's it's begun to happen now and it's a, it's a more settled place and it's a much more all-round cosmopolitan league now, the Premier League. Even back then, there were huge numbers of foreigners, but the idea that South Americans had come and been hugely successful in English football hadn't quite happened. Yeah. And so, you know, thinking about that, about a 20-year-old Lucas Leiva making that move from Gremio to Liverpool to play for Rafa he says it's Liverpool it is quite a when you look back now it is quite a big leap yeah we we touched on this last week didn't we the the journey he's been on and I think it's it's a good one for for footy fans to reflect on actually about when when you see anyone coming to a new country at that age and even we we talked to Steve Warnock about this even lads moving between clubs within the country not I don't think enough credit is given to them especially young players that it's their whole life sort of turned upside down and they might, people, some people are even moving with young families and they've got all those other considerations to think about. And we just, we just all focus, or we tend to focus on what's going on on the pitch and and don't give any credit to how what's going on off the pitch can affect what goes on on the pitch as if the the fact that our personal lives can affect our day-to-day jobs because it just affects how you think about stuff and your concentration and stuff like that as if that's not allowed to happen to footballers you usually because they get paid a lot of money which I'm, I'm never I'm never sure where that argument comes from because then I always find up asking myself well, where's the line on how much money you're getting paid that means you don't have to think about real world stuff um but yeah it's I, it's really sad I keep, I keep looking at Twitter I, I, and I was telling myself the other day after we did that show that um I won't, I won't, I won't believe it until I actually see him in a Lazio shirt playing a game. Because this has happened so many times that you think, oh, it might just fall through. It, they might just change their mind. Someone might get injured, and Lucas will come back. But every time I see a Twitter photo now with him on a bike with things stuck to his chest and stuff, I think, I think, it's, <laughs> I think it's probably going to happen this time. And I, I think it is quite sad. I think that's everyone seems to be sort of thinking a similar thing, don't they? It's quite sad to see him go. Are you and, sad? Are you sad about it, Ian? Um. I think I am sad about it. I, I've had a, I wouldn't say love-hate relationship with Lucas, but I, I remember when he he joined in 2007 and he, he came with a reputation as a as a box-to-box midfielder coming in from Brazil. I think you do sometimes forget he was only 20 when he arrived, so I think that's a very good point. Um, 
And it became apparent he wasn't going to be a box-to-box midfielder for us. He was going to be a defensive midfielder. And I think he's one of those players that initially, he, he frustrated me massively. I think, you know, coming into a new league, um, maybe the hustle and bustle of the Premier League at times exposed some of his weaknesses. But I think... I was very much in the camp where I, I grew to appreciate Lucas and, and what he what he stood for, not just as a football player who at times showed loads and loads of intelligence and had some really really high performance games, but also as a as a man as well. And I think I think that's important because as fans you want to see you want to see guys who who give it in terms of quality on the pitch, but you also want players who get it, who understand it, who know what it means to pull the shirt on, play in front of the car, play in front of these fans, tough fans, week in, week out. And Lucas was that person. So whilst there may have been times where maybe he didn't quite live up to what we wanted from him as a football player, um, I think he, you know, he kind of leaves with... It's a bit of a heavy heart from my point of view because when he spoke to the Anfield rap, it kind of become apparent that... I think sometimes you think about footballers and you think, well... Do they actually know what we feel about them? And listening to his interview to the rap, you realise that he he knew everything. He knew what the fans thought of him, and and I felt a little bit sorry for him to be honest, because I think he just wanted to be loved and liked. And I, and I think he my abiding memory will, will, of Lucas would be that he gave everything. And there was there were times when it was frustrating, and he he'd maybe bundle into players. And I think that's where a lot of fans' frustration grew. Um, but he also played with heart and, and, and at times intelligence. Um, he played under five Liverpool managers. Um, I think it's important to remember. And whilst maybe Roy Hodgson, there wasn't a, a great relationship there. The other four, there was a good relationship there. And, you know, you forget about performances that he was involved in. 4-1 away at Old Trafford, he was pivotal. Even, I mean, you can say there wasn't a great relationship there under Hodgson. He was on the list. I mean, you know, this is how back the idea that Lucas is going to go goes. He was on the list of players that Perslow gave Hodgson as these are the lads who you're going to get rid of. And then Hodgson, to be fair to, you know, and you'll very rarely hear this sentence come out of my mouth, <laughs> but to be fair to Hodgson, Hodgson looks at that list, looks at Lucas in training and decides, I need to, and I actually want to use this lad on a regular basis and do you think the Mascherano thing plays into a little bit into yeah that I, think it does, I think it does a little bit but I think in general it, you know I, and you know that list given handed to Hodgson by by, by Christian Persler remains utterly obnoxious you know you can't you, you can't not think about that that period of Liverpool's history without thinking about lists and dossiers and Lucas was present through it and through what was a you know a pretty dark time Ian but again he survives that he survives everything just to just to play his football it, it, it is in a really strange sense you know there's there's almost there's a, even though there, you know Lucas has got 344 games for Liverpool, there isn't the litany of trophies one that lots and lots of ex-Liverpool players have. But he's very much sort of charted this mad period in Liverpoolian history in a way in which I don't think any other footballer has, including Steven Gerrard. He's you know he's been here since from about the moment where it begins to go mad under Rafa, right the way through until Rafa getting ousted, right the way through until all the Hicks and Gillette stuff going in the background. The 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 club, the good players in the club effectively disappearing and being replaced by rubbish. Then the arrival of Kenny, he gets that, probably plays his best football under Kenny. Yeah. Then the arrival of Rodgers and Suarez and everything that's around that. And now he's caught the sort of the South American contingent there with Suarez and all of that and Coutinho. And then into sort of the, it going wrong for Rodgers and then into Klopp. What I'm saying is, you know, he's probably got... We, we do a lot of stuff about what footballers' stories are and all of that sort of stuff. There is a fantastic story that Lucas Leib has got that, for instance, you haven't got if you're playing for Liverpool between 1982 and 1990 because all you're saying is, God, we won a lot. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, it, and it's probably frustrating for him as well as his fans that he, he probably walk, well, he walks away with 
with no trophies. He, he was here for the 2012 uh, win against Cardiff in the League Cup, but he, he doesn't feature. He's injured, so he's not in the squad. Um, so it's sad that he's not walking away with more trophies. I think it's, you know, the likes of Benitez trusted him so much. And you know, he played those Inter Milan games in 2008. Lucas features in both, you know, Alonso's on the bench. So there's times where he has hit some, some really high ceilings. And I think, you know, I, I, I look at Lucas now and, and it is with a, with a heavy heart that he, that he goes. Um, but I, no one could fault his commitment. And I think Carragher put something out today and said, listen, you've been a great servant and we wish you all the best. And I'd certainly second that. Great. I think with with Lucas, what sort of worked against him in the beginning was it. I think the fact that he was Brazilian added to the excitement of the signing at the time. There's something sexy about uh, about signing a Brazilian, but then he comes and stylistically he's not what we would have in our head as as what we'd expect from a, a Brazilian. He wasn't even a box to box midfielder, really, was he? Um, I think that the thing I've loved most about Lucas Leiva is that during his time we've seen players like Carragher and Gerrard local lads depart and he's almost became like uh, an adopted scouser in a way um, you see him helping with like the likes of Firmino the likes of uh, Coutinho the, Bra- the, the Brazilian lads in the squad and I think He's, he's experienced so much, so many ups and downs in his Liverpool career, almost an up and down every season, the way at some stage he becomes important and then it looks as if he's going to leave. Oh, no, but he stays, another comeback. And so I think that's what what that's what that's I like most of it, um, Lucas Leiva, and, and I will be sad to see him go. It's, Paul, you know, to go right the way back and sort of, he's mentioned it there, Craig, the, the fact that he, he was insufficiently Brazilian uh, in terms of the sort of player that he was, but... In those that, that that journey that he sort of goes on in the early years, you can say he's insufficiently Brazilian. But the other thing that happens is he gets a manager who decides he's going to change the sort of football that he is quite yeah. quickly. You know, almost you suspect it might have been in his mind at the moment he buys him that he decides. And it's happened to footballers, you know, many many times. Didier Man was was when he signed for Newcastle was expected to be an attacking midfielder. By the time he's done a season under Gerard Houllier with Kenny Dalglish at Newcastle, in the meantime, he very much is a holding midfielder. Mm-hmm. It happens that footballers move around, but it doesn't happen that often at the age of sort of 20, 21. And yet that was the very much the trajectory for Lucas, which straight away was one of the reasons why and perhaps one of the reasons why Benitez still clearly has such a big fondness for him in that he's aware that he doesn't do many favours he doesn't let him cut loose and play the sort of football he might want to he might want to play he instead says no you've got to do more of this sort of job I've I've talked about this a few times in the past about Lucas's Lucas's sliding doors moments in his, in his career and I I can never get away from the one in the derby when I, I, you, who knows what his career at Liverpool would have been if he scores the winning goal into the top corner, having come on for Gerrard as a sub? Imagine how that just that that's that's your start of your Liverpool story, and then you are an attacking midfielder, and everyone's like this Brazilian lad from from Gremio who's good, and then everyone starts. And I I remember watching videos of him back then. I don't know how I, I, there wasn't any internet, but um, they had the, the internet um, in two thousand and seven. Um, there was no Twitter and stuff. I mean, but. But the the videos of him was very much box to box midfielder. He was young player of the year in Brazil. He was an exciting with the long blonde hair and all of that, and that's what people were excited about. And I remember having an argument with with people back then when he, he started and he, he wasn't scoring goals and people were moaning about it. But I remember thinking he's get he does get in positions though, and he you know maybe it's just a confidence thing. It's his age, whatever. Give him a bit of time. And I remember saying to someone, Joe, he's going to be a 15, 20 goal a season midfielder, which obviously turns out to look stupid now. But the the uh, mitigating argument against that is his position got changed very quickly. And I always come back to that, that one key moment. And I wonder if he ever speaks to Phil Neville about it and says, do you, you could have single-handedly literally changed my, the course of my career here. And uh, but to back, back to the point you're making, 
I'm not sure he ever he ever got enough credit for that in the early years. That you know, and on top of the things we're talking about, the personal life, being twenty, moving from from Brazil, completely different culture, coming to Liverpool. He then has to reinvent himself as a footballer completely. It's a completely different position. And ironically, we've sort of seen in recent seasons a little bit of drifting back the other way, haven't we? Like since Klopp's come in, we've seen him getting more opportunities to get further up the pitch and creating goals and, and getting a sniff of, of scoring goals again. So you, I wonder, it'd be, it'd be nice to, when he when he's finally finished and he reflects back on it all, to get a, a fully honest appraisal from him of, of what he sees as as that that sort of fork in the road and would he have preferred to have just persevered with that attacking you, you, position a bit more? You mentioned there, probably that sliding doors moment, I totally take the the Derby point of view, but uh, also that injury against Chelsea, the, in, in, I think it's, it's yeah. 2011 and it's around about November, December time. Even me as one of his probably fiercest critics at the time, I, I do remember giving him a, a little bit of stick, frustrating at times, but he was in such good form then. He was in really good form. And I started to think, even though know, it's three or four years into his Liverpool career, but you're thinking, no, this lad's a player. He could be a player. He looked like he'd, he got, he grasped the Premier League. He understood what it was like to play, hold him in field player for Liverpool. Um, and his form was great. And he gets that injury, and I think it puts him out for nearly the whole season from no, then on. A, I mean, I was, I was just going to come on to that, really, because I've got I've got that season in front of me. And he's, he, he starts every game he's eligible for that season. He gets a suspension because he's, he's carrying Charlie Adams' water. But he starts every game that he's, that he's eligible to start through the, through the course of that season. And Liverpool have only lost two by the time that he gets he gets injured. One's a very bad defeat at Spurs, but the other one's a, a horror a horror show at Stoke where John Walter scores the only penalty. But they've played in that period, Arsenal, Manchester United, Manchester City, Everton. All those games are done and they've only lost Chelsea away. And Liverpool have got results in all of them with Lucas on the pitch. And I think that... You know that Manchester City game. Everyone remembers the strength of his and the quality of his performance. And Liverpool lacked a little bit of quality further forward. Ian and you know to, to mention that game. That's where on a sliding door sort of sense. That's where Liverpool's season begins to go off the rails. They lose the next game uh, away at Fulham, and it's an absolute horror show. Spurring gets sent off in the seventy-second minute, and. It's where it, there's there's daft draws in the immediate horizon. There's then a defeat at Manchester City not too long after. My point about this is that's a real that's a moment that actually defines that season in hindsight. And it was only when I was looking back at it for this that it occurred to me that we talk a lot about that season with hitting the post and Kenny being a bit unlucky and maybe losing his way a little bit as things aren't beginning to go right for him. But one of your key moments there is he doesn't know what to do once Lucas Labour gets injured. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a it's a it's a, it's a good point. And looking back, you don't realise it was probably. Quite, I had it in my head that it was maybe a bit late in the season, but I think it is around about November, December time, and it's it's a shame because when he when he then comes back, he he doesn't. He's never the same player, was like it? the same no, player again, and that's the frustration because it just looked like it was beginning to turn for him, and it and maybe he looked it, quick. He did. He, he looked and he'd lost half a yard or so, maybe even a yard when he came back, and that was that was the frustration because you're thinking it had taken him. And by then, he's, he's still only 23, 24 years of age. So he's, you know, understandably, it's taken him a little bit of time to get to grips with the Premier League. You know, as Paul mentioned before, not, not only the on-the-pitch stuff, but the off-the-pitch stuff. And that just is a real kind of sickener because he comes back and, he, and he's just not the same player, unfortunately. It's that ability to turn that he loses, Craig. I think that's one of the things. He, he goes from being able to, to do a lot of covering across the whole of centre midfield. A bit, you know, a slightly more modern twist on what we'd actually seen with holding midfielders up to that point. It, he wasn't going to spray your passes like Xabi Alonso. He wasn't even going to be as tigerish in a sense as Javier Mascherano. But what he was able to do was just knit things up, keep it tidy, hassle Harry 
and cover ground really, really quickly. And the player that he that he, that he comes back as by the start of 2012, when by the way he gets another injury very early on in the 2012 season, uh, and loses again a little bit more pace and that ability to move quite freely. Those two injuries back to back are what I think sort of end him from the point of view of being someone who you could see regularly starting for Liverpool but prior to them both he was looking like a starting centre midfielder for the top four side yeah and very good in the air as well and I, I just often thought with Lucas that it felt like that at times he, he just needed 10 he needed to get sort of 10-15 games under his belt in centre midfield and then suddenly he would look a little bit quicker and he did he did lose pace and he did lose a little bit of that guile but um, even this season we saw when, when he came back into this uh, come back in as a defensive midfielder over a, pe- a period of games we were you know, we were beginning to talk about how maybe Lucas doesn't get sold this summer, and maybe he plays more again next uh, next season. Um, and I just often thought that maybe, and it's, we saw the same with Emery Chan as well <laughs> this season, where um, we were saying he looked slow and ponderous, and then you give him a little bit uh, time, give him, you know, give him minutes, and then suddenly he doesn't anymore. And I just always thought that with Lucas, and you know. <laughs> He, he was he was sort of relegated to being uh, you know we were, we were saying that he was now a centre back and that he was no longer this centre midfielder but he was still he was only he's only twenty nine thirty I think he's thirty nine, yeah. um, but yeah I, injuries definitely affect him but I still always believed that if 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 and and I wouldn't be surprised to see this at Lazio that if he's given a run of ten fifteen games in centre midfield that you know play. You know, we'll be looking at Lucas again and saying, "Oh, he's he's found that that extra yard of pace that he lost in injuries." Uh, the next the next marker in my mind is that thirteen fourteen season, Paul. Where again, you, you've used the sliding doors thing, so we'll hang on in there. It's Lucas who comes in and plays at the base of midfield when Liverpool go to Tottenham and win five nil. And Gerard actually says, you know, with in that way in which footballers do, I don't know if I'm going to get back into this side where it feels like it might just be a joke, but it might also scream of of, of degree of insecurity. And even there, that that running where one thing that actually happens and why, again, he maybe doesn't get the time on the pitch we might all have anticipated when Liverpool change shape and approach these games with, with, with the diamonds is that Gerard reinvents himself and has this unbelievable renaissance in the running where, you know, he's, he's beyond picking himself. He's, you know, he's a totemic force. He, Gerard finishes the season out of Gary McAllister uh, in the treble season where for the last sort of three or four months, you can actually argue Gerard might be player of the year. Even there, you know, that emergence at that moment of Gerard is something else that sort of pulls Lucas out of what could well be the sort of the spotlight as he was the natural player to play in that position. And when Liverpool started to play with that player, it was Lucas who the manager had turned to and said, you know, can you do, can you do bits and pieces of this for me? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think one of the things, if, if you sort of ask people to give phrases about Lucas to sum him up, I've seen a couple of people, Mike Nevin, I think might have even said this on Twitter yesterday or early today, um, just not just never quite good enough. For Liverpool, and I, I always think that's a, it's an interesting concept, isn't it? Because in what in what context is the is he not quite good enough? Because every step of the way, every year we're talking about here, pretty much he's competing with one of, if not the greatest player in Liverpool's history to play in centre midfield, and at other times he's competing with the likes of Javier Mascherano and Xabi Alonso, and you're like, well, these are these are some of the best players I've ever seen play that position, not just for Liverpool. For anyone, that when when we had those midfielders, I was like, you sort of take it for granted, especially for like when you're a bit younger. And then as, as the years pass, and we've we've had the the Roy Hodgson eras and things like that, and we've seen Charlie Adam playing centre mid for us. You, you look back at times like that and think, God, they were good players, weren't they? They were really good players, and and he, he's sort of always had those 
in and around him, stopping him getting in the side. And that's your one is a perfect example, 13, 14, that Joe all of a sudden he probably thinks I've got a I've got a run here of playing in this position. And and Brendan Rogers goes, Do you know what we might have a go at? We'll play Stephen Gerrard there for a bit. And imagine me and Lucas going home to your wife that night. What's happened today? They've decided the best player in Liverpool's history is going to play in my position now. <laughs> Unlucky mate. So, and it, I think there's there's I mean there's there's always the counter argument to that, isn't it? That if you if you are good enough, then you make sure you nail down your spot and you make sure like like Gerard did basically. Gerard's been there when there've been other players better than him at first, and he's gone. Well, I'll just I'll just improve. So I I appreciate there's that argument as well, but. Yeah, it's a strange it's, thing, isn't it? There is there isn't a because the, the, the because it's, it's interesting. You talk to Mike. I, look, I uh, talk to Mike a lot about football. And one of the things he's very big on is he's big on a squad. Like he yeah. doesn't understand why we why we often end up talking about first 11s. and that's where you know the counter argument to that not quite good enough to play for Liverpool is that well he's he's been he's been a key squad member, if not someone who starts every single game yeah. in two sides that we would all sit around this table and say we're unlucky not to win the title in 08, 09 and 13, 14. So if he gets one of those over the line, which by the way, probably doesn't have that much to do with him in either instances, but he's, but he's played his part. And I think that we're, we, we do have a bit of a thing that there will be some lads who just play the part. But if you don't get it done, so for instance, now Craig Johnston's looked back on as a footballer who very much played his part in mm. Liverpool sides where he himself says he was the 11th best player in that 11. Yeah. He'd say that if he was sitting here. So, but the reason why you're able to say that and people remember you with legendary status is because they get the job done. Yeah. They win the trophy and then you get to sort of go, you know, well, I was good enough because I, was, I played a part in this side and that's quite a... You know, when Liverpool next win something, when they next hopefully win the title, there'll be lads who will be number. It's the it's the Jimmy Triori's got a European Cup winners medal argument. There'll be lads who are number seventeen, eighteen, nineteen in the squad who'll be able to say, "Well, I was good enough to be seventeen, eighteen, nineteen in the squad." Lucas on both of those instances, oh eight, oh nine, and thirteen, fourteen. He's twelve, thirteen, fourteen in the squad. Yeah. Well, look at. I mean, I made a banner about him. Look at Igor or Igor Biscan. The the fondness with which he's remembered in the in the pantheon of Liverpool. Like people people remember Igor Biscan. And in the grand scheme of things, in the history of this club, there's well better players than him that don't get remembered or don't get don't get talked about as fondly. But it's it's just because he played in a team that went on to win the European Cup. And so, yeah, I, I agree with that completely. I think one of the points I was going to make actually is when you're judging when you're judging footballers as fans, and it's easy to do that. Something I always like to bring everyone back to is how managers view them, and ma- and players like Lucas and Dirk Cout and. For other teams, I remember seeing Dar- um, Darren Fletcher playing for United and I, I was at a United-Everton game randomly with with being invited by someone and I thought he was great. Like He played great just watching him as a player when I don't care whether he's good or not. And everybody already had a view of what Darren Fletcher was as United fans hated him. So whenever he made a mistake, they would focus on that. But Fletcher was a perfect example um, of, this, of this point, which is managers pick these players. Managers keep these players around them. Managers put these players in their World Cup squads. Loads of managers, not just one manager. People go, well, he's got a favourite. But Lucas has been there for 10 years under how many managers, how many different types of managers. And they've all gone, yeah, I'm keeping Lucas around. And the only reason he's actually leaving now is goodwill, pretty much, isn't it? It's all right, mate, you can go if you want. But if you said to Klopp, would you keep Lucas? He'd say, yeah. Yes, please. I will, I will, yeah. Like we had that conversation last week, didn't we? 32 appearances last season. Klopper go, yeah, of course I'll keep him around. He's great on and off the pitch. And as fans, we can we can look at things and go, oh, he's not good enough about loads of different players. But when you've got that many managers over that many years who go, I'm putting him in my team. I remember seeing Dirk Cout in the, in the Dutch World Cup squad playing in the first 11 a few years ago. Uh, about the age of 33, 34. Yeah. 
and and the managers. I don't know whether it was Van Hal at the time. You're like, yeah, he's playing on my team every day. Of the playing week. a fullback as well. Yeah, but I mean, I'm, I'm getting him on the pitch. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm getting exactly. him on the pitch. That's the James Milner yeah. thing, isn't it? Yeah, I want him. I want him in there. And when you think about all those those Liverpool managers as well, they're all they're all different managers stylistically. They all play different types of football, but they still found a place for Lucas. And uh, you know, as I say, I think it is. It's sad that he kind of leaves without without any trophies, and and it almost feels right that it's it's on his terms because. I don't think anyone was going to be pushing Lucas out the door. I think there's loads and loads of benefits to keeping him around and, mm. and not many negatives really, you know, on the pitch stuff as well as off the pitch stuff. Um, and listen, when you speak to ex-footballers, they all say the same thing. You've got to keep playing for as long as you can. So I don't think anyone would be grudging and thinking, well, I'll go and spend the last two or three years in Rome, lovely city, hopefully playing 20, 30 games a season. And you know what? There's every chance he comes back to Liverpool and ends up there in some capacity in the future. Indeed. Uh, everybody's wishing him well, I think it's fair to say. Uh, everybody's wishing him well. It's an interesting 10-year career. There uh, might be a piece to be written about it. Maybe I should do that. I'll have a little think uh, over the next few weeks. Everybody li- wishing Lucas Lever well, though. He's gone to Lazio. Uh, also, just a, a hello to Les Lawson and uh, get well soon, Les. I uh, hope you're listening to this. You've got the opportunity to do so. Uh, do get well soon. Uh, moving forward, literally up the pitch uh, towards strikers, both in the sense of a couple of rumours resurfaced over the summer. I think we know... Uh, Craig Cannon, Liverpool one of our Naby Keita, Liverpool one of our Virgil van Dijk. What's been interesting through the summer is Liverpool have clearly got a watching brief on Mbappe. It's No one's making this up. Liverpool have got an interest and have spent some time working on Mbappe. It does appear to be the case. And that that reports remain there over the weekend. There's rumours were sort of around Aubameyang saying Chelsea are favourites, but Liverpool's odds are shortening. It's this... It's a strange summer uh, for a variety of reasons, not least nobody knows what anyone's worth. But there is also this little thing with, with, with this Liverpool side, this Liverpool squad, the Liverpool manager, where if he was sitting here now, we'd say he's perfectly happy with the centre-forward options. And yet a couple of these links sort of persist. And you'd also possibly argue, as Sam Maguire did on Football Whispers, that he's got too many uh, forwards. Uh, it's an excellent piece, Sam's, by the way, and do check it out. But... You do think that if the opportunity came to sign one of these, Liverpool would. It's it's being opportunistic on the one side, Craig, but also on the other, it's it suggests that the manager's still thinking a lot about what he's going to get out of his out of his front three, front two, front four, whatever it is, across the course of not just this season, but maybe the next two or three. I think opportunity is the key word there. I think Jurgen Klopp, if he's looking at an Mbappe kind of player, that's an opportunity for him because that opportunity might not come around again anytime soon for a player that's that young with that much potential that he can work with and help shape and mould. I think Obama Yang's a, a funny one because he's 28 now. And Weird. He, he went from 22 to 28 almost overnight as far <laughs> yeah, as I'm concerned. Exactly. And, and he, you know, it looked as if he might leave Dortmund last year and he's had an excellent season again at Dortmund. But yet that move to Real Madrid that you'd heard talked about you know, it doesn't look as if it's going to happen. And it's now almost as if Aubameyang's, you know, waiting for someone like a Liverpool to come in and make a bid and 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 go for him. I think it, it, our strikers are... It, when I look at the strikers, I'm thinking, right, Firmino, fine. Um, it looked like Sturridge might leave this summer. Klopp never made it look like Sturridge uh, would leave. It was always the newspapers and, and fans talking about it. And if you look at last season, when we were going into the season last season, we were looking and thinking, right, we've got loads of striking options here because we've got Daniel Sturridge, if we can keep him fit. We've got Firmino, who scores, who can score goals. And we've got Origi as well. And it didn't really happen for Origi. And I think Klopp maybe is looking at our strike force and thinking, well, I can get more out of them next summer, I, or next season. Sorry, I think that um, Danny Ng should be used as a little bit of, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, 
an option, an option, and what's the word? I'm trying to think, I've forgotten anyway. But as an option, should he be? Um, should he be uh, fined when he comes back from injury? But I think, I think Klopp will be looking at Sturridge and thinking, well, I can get more out of Sturridge than we did last season, and I think I can get more out of Origi. And then you've got Solanka there, who's sort of going to be hot in the heels of Origi to sort of maybe provide more competition. And I, I wouldn't be in the market for a, for a striker at all. I don't think. I think. The only reason it would be is an, if a, an Mbappe. I don't even know. Aubameyang would be excited to see, but I don't even know if I'd be wanting to spend a whole lot of his transfer budget on on, on a player like him. I think uh, the, the striking one's an interesting one. And I, I think I remember having a conversation, it might be with Paul Senior, about some of the striking options. And I think he felt at the time that maybe Liverpool had enough when you list off some of the names you've mentioned there, Craig. My, my main issue with it was there was too many question marks over some of those players. So Origi... I've got no idea what Origi wanted to see next season. Literally no idea. First year on the clock, he looked like he could have been anything he wanted to be. And then last year, even when he was scoring goals, it wasn't really happening for him. Sturridge, listen, not many would argue he's probably the best finisher at the club. It's getting him on the pitch. And and, and to be fair, he probably has lost a little bit in terms of where he was early doors under Rodgers. Um, Solanke, don't quite know enough about him. Watched him in the summer, but I think you know he's now it's obvious to say he's unproven at this level. Um, so when a footballer like a Bambiang could potentially be on the market, I would, in an ideal world, love Liverpool to be in the conversation. I think if you look at the, the Naby Keita thing, for instance, Liverpool probably don't need a midfielder that much, but he's an exceptional one. He's on the market, so you've got to be interested in him. You know, a, a guy who can play six, eight and ten, you've got to be interested in that kind of footballer. Aubameyang is a guy who will score well above one and two. Um his record for Dortmund is unbelievable. Um, he's a high-level number nine. If he's available, I want Liverpool to be in the conversation. I don't think he will be. I think he probably ends up at Chelsea. You know, Chelsea are sniffing round. Morata, Aubameyang, Balotti, Torino. So they probably end up with one of those lads. I'd probably say it ends up being Aubameyang. But I certainly think Liverpool, whilst being... While scoring loads of goals last year, there's times when we weren't ruthless enough. And I love Firmino. And I get Mike Nevin's arguments around, you know this obsession with, well, how's he get a game in our first 11? I don't care. I want loads of boss players at the football club and I want the manager to have loads of options. And there's times where you almost need a guy who's going to just flat-track bully those teams. And I see a Bamiang as someone who could come in, to be fair, he's not just a flat-track bully, he's better than that. But I, I would love a footballer like that at Liverpool. And if it means Firmino doesn't get as many games, then so be it. Um, you know, Firmino's a talent for football. He'll get games, you know, at other times, in other parts of the pitch. Um but he's someone, and as well as Mbappe, uh, goes without saying. I would love it if Liverpool brought in, you know, to quote Kevin Keegan, someone, someone like that, because I think we are probably a forward shy, um, and I think if it doesn't end up being a typical kind of forward number nine, I still think Klopp will be looking at at least a wide forward. On my Obama Yang, I just, I just think that if Liverpool were going to sign him, you'd, he'd be someone that Klopp would be going after. At the same time as Van Dyke and Keita, he would be up there as one of our t- top targets. And it just feels a bit strange that I, I wonder as well with, with his goal scoring record in Germany, I wonder why he doesn't have loads of teams after him. Why why it's getting to, you know, I think Dortmund give him a, um, I think Dortmund said, I've given him an ultimatum and said he has to have signed, he has, has to have found a club by a certain time, I think the end of this month. And I just wonder why why, he's, why not last season and why not this season? I think the fee now plays a part. You're looking at £70 million for a 28 year old footballer. You know, I've listened to Paul talk about this money ball thing and, and the Mbappe thing makes so much sense because of that reason, because no matter what, you're getting at least your money back, if not more. There's no sell-on value with Aubameyang. It's purely let's go and get him because we know he's really, really good. If it doesn't work out, 
in two or three years, you, you ain't getting anything for him. So I think the fee, plus his age, will probably put one or two off. I don't think it puts Chelsea off. If Liverpool are going to go and spend £140 million on Kiten and Van Dijk, then £70 million potentially puts Liverpool off. I, th- I think there's loads of interesting stuff around this. And one of them, I remember Mel Reddy saying something on, on a show the other weekend, and about a month ago, before she'd said that, I was thinking this, a similar thing, which is people, everyone simultaneously bangs on about us having all these deals that are in the press and drag on for ages and wanting to buy someone who we don't know we're going to buy, but then don't accept that we might be buying someone that we don't know we're going to buy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I looked, I was sitting back the other week and I was thinking, well, if there was someone we were going to buy, that just it just hadn't really hit the press, who could it be? And I just had a little look around and I looked at the odds on us buying Aubameyang about a month ago and we were second or third favourites. And one of those, one of the shorter odds than us was him staying at Dortmund. So it was basically, we were second favourites to sign him if he leaves the club. And I was thinking, well, and it, it was as short as something like three to one or four to one. So not, not really worth a bet. But I remember thinking, that's interesting, isn't it? That's why if a player of that calibre that we would all pretty much like to have has got that link with Klopp is three to one with the bookies to sign. Why isn't that? Why isn't that more of a story? And it could be nothing. It could just be the bookies are being bookies and, and don't want to expose themselves. Or it could be there's something going on in the background and all of a sudden we'll go, yeah, we've signed the Bamiyang lads. Because I think all, all of those things don't make sense, do they? They don't. It doesn't make sense. Even even with the age thing, which I'm, I'm massively with Ian on and, and the Moneyball stuff, even with all of that, it doesn't make any sense that there aren't a number of clubs saying we'll have a Bamiyang. Because not every other club runs a sort of money ball type philosophy. Remember when when Ferguson bought Van Persie? Very much with a view to, he'll be good for a season maybe, he'll win me one more league and then I don't really care what happens after that because the league's what, what's important. And we we discussed this a couple of weeks ago about um, the likes of Van Dijk. Surely as a football club there are some signings that you look at and you just think, well this, is, this isn't an investment for us to sell. This is an investment for us to win things and to build our brand and to make sure that around the world we're, we're this global force. That Which we is something we don't do enough. Exactly. So, and because if you look at Aubameyang and say, well, okay, he's 60 million, 70 million, whatever he ends up being. Bearing in mind as well, and this is something we discussed a few weeks ago actually about whoever moves first sets the bar. Well, bars have started to be set now. So Lukaku is 75 million sort of without add-ons at his age, premiership proven. So if you go for Aubameyang, you can use that as a bar and say to them, well, we're not going to give you 75 million because he's four or five years older than Lukaku, no solemn fee, all the rest of it. And then you start that as your negotiation. But it could, you could say, well, okay, say it's 65 million and he plays for us for four years. That's money well spent. Yeah, It's an investment spread over that time. And during that time, we will win things with him in our squad. Well, well, that's exactly it. If you did sign him and you win something with him playing up front and scoring goals, then then suddenly he is worth it. Exactly. He's absolutely worth it. Yeah, yeah. But because it's not buying with it. I think football's become this weird thing where we all, and we've all been sort of sucked into this. Buying football has become, we talk about how much are they worth if you sell them on? I don't want to sell them. <laughs> I want them to just play for Liverpool for the rest of his career and score yeah. loads of goals and win trophies. So let's forget, like, don't worry about that other bit. If he plays for three years and scores a load of goals and then we sell him for 20 million sound, I don't really, yeah. I don't really care. But an- another interesting point that comes through all of this, which is stuff that we, th- we talk about in the round, and Aubameyang's a good example of this. N- no one's really talking about the fact that we've got two amazingly quick winger players who are called wingers now, who would easily be good. Joe, if, if I told you now that in four years' time, Mane is going to be the best centre-forward in the world, does that seem so unbelievable? that he could be the next winger converted to be a striker and he's the new Aubameyang. 
And no one really talks about that. It's like mm. it's like that's only something that can happen to other clubs with other players who've already done it. And maybe that's why it's not the massive priority because I think maybe Klopp look like, obviously looks at it and thinks, well, centre-mid and centre-half are bigger priorities. I've got a lot of flexibility in that forward line where if I need to, I can play Salah through the middle, I can play Marnie through the middle, I can switch systems and play two up top. And he's so, got five strikers. And he's got five strikers. So it's yeah. not a massive priority, but I just think when there's a footballer of that level potentially gettable and he is gettable I want Liverpool to be in the discussion like but, no I, I agree on that I do agree on that but I think it's just the fact that we do have these wingers like I wouldn't I wouldn't pa- put it past Klopp playing uh, you know at home to some of the smaller teams maybe a Sturridge up top and a Salah beside him or a Mane beside him you know that three that fluid three I don't think he'll use that just solely next season I think there will be times where he plays two up front and I think you know if it was me I'd be tempted to give Mane a go up there I'd be tempted to give Salah a go do you know what I mean Yeah. Um, so I think it's just that I think that's the reason I think I, I think I don't, I don't, I don't know why he brings in Solanke then if he's going to sign Nababiang because then you've got Solanke who's the fifth, sixth choice is striker. There, you know what yeah, I mean? But is there a conversation on it, Craig, where it actually becomes all the way through this window we've gone, I've gone. I'm not going to say we, but I, for instance, do not think there's a backup to Kaita. So I think Liverpool signed Kaita, and I think that the, I think Liverpool wanted to sign uh, Van Dijk, Kaita, Salah, um, Robertson slash a left back of that ilk, and Oxley Chamberlain. And I think that, that that was what, you know, if you if you got them all in and said, what do we think is achievable? That comes to about 210 million quid. We know, broadly speaking, who we're going to let go. This is how much this is going to be. Is there a conversation around, is the back of Kaita or Bamiyang? That whilst they don't play in the same position, you're looking at a similar sort of fee with a similar yep. sort of one-off basis of, well, we've got this money this season. We need to ensure we keep our place in the top four. That's the absolute priority so that this money doesn't start drying up, so that this profile doesn't start drying up. And I do sort of, there is a thing in my mind where I'm not going to say they're going to spend the money for the sake of spending the money, but I do sort of wonder if the idea is, listen, we want it with Kaita, the manager's desperate to get Kaita. We'd love to have Kaita, one Kaita, one Kaita, one Kaita. And if it gets to the point where someone has to take Jürgen into a room and calm him down and say, sit down with you, lad. <laughs> have a cup of tea. You don't want that job, to be fair. Have a cup of tea. Um, got to, you know, just a bit of chit-chat for a minute or two. How are the kids? Yeah, how do you feel it's going pre-season? Yeah, listen, we don't think we're going to get Kaita. We think it's just it's just not going to happen. Now, I don't think that will happen, but someone says that to him. But they might say, but that money could lash it on Aubameyang, you know. And I wonder if that's why the, the why those odds aren't going anywhere, yeah. why that rumour isn't going away as such. But that's why, for instance, if you are Chelsea, if I was running Chelsea's arrangements right now, I'd be tempted to go, should we just get this sorted? Because yeah. we don't know what changes. But that's what I think might be might might be on the cards here, Craig. Yeah, I'd, I'd not thought about it that way, to be honest. I think... Um... I think everyone's talked about how this is such a big summer for FSG and Liverpool are back in the Champions League and they've got this, you know, they've got a manager of Jurgen Klopp's stature and they will have to, if they can't get Kaita, that's, that'll be the most interesting aspect of our summer, I think, because if they don't get Kaita... Because we know they'll is... buy another centre-off. If they can't get Van Dijk, they'll buy another centre-off. Yeah. But if they can't get Kaita, what do they because actually do? Exactly, it's not exactly like we've got a shortage of centre no. midfielders at the minute with Wijnaldum, Chan, Henderson, uh, Coutinho to play in there, Lallana can drop in there. So we've got loads of them. So um, I think it, it goes back to opportunity. I think Jurgen Klopp's seen an opportunity to buy um, a player that's the best in his, his position um, and, and he wants to take that. But yeah, I, I've, I've not thought about it that way. And I think if if you're going into the Champions League and you can't get Kaita and maybe Van Dijk's on the rocks and you, you have the opportunity to get and Aubameyang then you I go well, for it yeah well I, I I said I know this is a madder example but I said this when Suarez went 
and we're trying to get Sanchez and we can't. And I, I got to a point where I was like, well, if you can't go and buy a pretty much like for like replacement for Suarez, be clever. Go and buy Manuel, buy, buy Manuel Neuer. Go and buy the best goalie in the world then. Spend that money on a position where we absolutely strengthen. And and then at least you can go, all right, well, we haven't got the goals at the other end, but we've we've shown up at the back where we had a massive weakness. And it's interesting because if you see Klopp's quotes about Keita, which I, I really liked in the, the the sort of analogy he was using, he was saying basically if you if you're a rich if you're a rich person, you want to buy a car and that you just want that one car, but the person says, Well, I don't need the money, I don't want to sell it. What do you do? He said, Someone says to you, go and buy that other car over there, that's it's another colour. He goes, oh, I don't want, I don't want that car. This is the car I want, and that's what he's talking about with Kaita. And Neil's, Neil's um, perspective, I think, I, that's the way I'd be looking at it. Is yeah, well, okay, if you're if you're using that sort of rich person analogy, like, well, what else is on your list? Do you want a new boat? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but well, there's this amazing boat over here. Do you want that instead? Because you've got the money to spend. And he go, yeah, okay, yeah. And the and the boat is your centre forward or your. Or the only the only thing with that is him. like Jurgen Klopp to continue your, your analogy. Jurgen Klopp said in the past that he he doesn't like to play with two play, you know the same player twice. I think he'd said that once he's worked with them, he'd rather work with new players. So does he want the same boat as he's he's used before? Because Mkhitaryan, he's had to go on that boat. <laughs> you know, Mkhitaryan was available last summer, and we weren't anywhere. You know, we weren't anywhere close. And you'd think, well, yeah. he'd, he'd like to give that boat a go again. Well, do, do, you know what do, I mean? do you know what though? I, I, you see this with some managers and it'd be interesting having a chat with him about this. I, I think that is genuinely a thing of, of his. It's like, I've already turned him into a boss player. <laughs> I, I, what is the what is there for me as a coach taking him who I've already turned into a brilliant player and just getting him to do the same thing again? It's boring. And I think that's It's what, like he likes the challenge of going, exactly. well, look, I'll turn Mane into Aubameyang and exactly. then you all go, isn't always oh, done it if, again. If you look at the players that he signs, the likes of a Mane, who he can see is just at that point where he's yeah. about to, you know, his trajectory is about to go. And uh, and I think that's and what Kaita he sees in Kaita. Kaita. That's yeah. exactly what he sees in Kaita. Yeah. So it Absolutely. depends what type of boat he wants. Exactly. <laughs> he, wants a, he wants a fixer-upper. That's the thing, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> It is, no, the whole situation is interesting. But do we have to, you know, just to sort of extend and finish the discussion really around the forward options at the minute, uh, Ian, we mentioned the five forwards, if you include Ings and Solanka, and the manager seems pretty determined to include Solanka, I think. All of Origi, uh, Sturridge and Solanka played the second half against Wigan and it was a bit of a mess uh, until Daniel Sturridge decided he was he, he was going to basically do something positionally a bit different to the other two, which was quite nice of him. Um, but... He's got them, he's got Firmino, and then and then there's Ings. In the wide areas at the minute, he's got Mane, uh, he's got Salah. I suppose the Newcastle are considering preparing a bid for Ojo at the moment. I was reading just before we came in to record this. But there is, you know, it, that he's got Coutinho as well to use in that from three. does maybe feel as though one of those lads who, who are currently we've got marked down in our heads as playing through the middle, he might quite like if either if they play wide or maybe to trade one, if you can imagine doing a bit of cynical squad building. But... Do you do you see something where maybe one of them might go, where something might become a little bit different, where you know that might be why he wants Oxley Chamberlain? I'm, it doesn't quite seem as, as settled to me, is what I'm saying. The sort of is, is front three options don't seem quite as plentiful in terms of options, despite the fact there's a lot of footballers. No, I agree, and I, I've touched on it before. Um, if I was if I was the manager, my my main concern would be the the question marks over the likes of, of Rigi, um, just in terms of his quality. I think Rigi's interesting because I think. He could. There's fans out there who I'm seeing say maybe we maybe we let Origi go, but I think it's too soon. You know, yeah, all strikers progress at different rates. If you look at a, a Didier Drogba at 21, 22, he's not the Didier Drogba at 24, 25 when he starts to really hit pace. So I, for me, I'm keeping Origi. Um, Danny Ings. I mean, he's had so many injuries now. I can't imagine you see any 
sort of what Danny Ings was like in terms of a decent option. Um, so maybe even the season after, you know, that, that in, those injuries are really, really bad. So it, it's going to take him a long time. So I, I'm not even really, really including as, as an option, certainly not for Premier League games. Um, Slanky will be interesting because, as I say, I don't think anyone quite knows his level yet. Um, and Sturridge, I sort of start with Sturridge, where apparently he was available for around about 25, 26 games last year. But he wasn't able to start those games. And that's just my concern with Daniel Sturridge. If you can get him looking like he did against West Ham, where he... There's a little bit of the old Daniel Sturridge there, then I don't think anyone's got an issue with him being at the football club. But what I don't want to see is Liverpool all of a sudden having a space of injuries and just having a lack of options where those injuries just fall at the same time. And I know you can't always guard against that, but if I was the manager, I'd be looking at bringing in one more forward player. And if that means letting someone go, and if that means it's Sturridge or someone else, then so be it. But I want one more, and I don't necessarily want that one more to be Oxlade-Chamberlain, who can do a little bit in the front three. I want it to be someone... Either, and listen, you don't get many Mane's or Salah's knocking about, but someone of that ilk, fast, pacey, um, can offer goals or someone more traditional in that in that forward line, like an Abama Young. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of on board with that. It comes back to something we discussed at the end of season review last year when we talked about squad balance and it's and something. I think it's slightly different with Klopp, and I'm a bit surprised we haven't seen a bit more of this. That actually, what Klopp needs in squad depth is not from what I can see, is not variety in positions, it's numbers in positions. So I'm surprised he's, he hasn't tried to get another Firmino because the pro, I think the problem we've had is that... That, that Luan link felt quite Firmino-ish, didn't it? Yeah, you know, and, that's, it and that felt like it was a real thing and, and that, that makes, gone that makes completely sense. quiet. Yeah, yeah well, and that, that sort of thing makes sense to me because I think the issue we had last year is, and we touched on this last week in the review, is that if Firmino drops out the team and you put Origi in, no matter how good Origi how well Origi plays or how well Sturridge plays, they are completely different footballers to Firmino. So if you combine, if you combine Sturridge and Origi into one player, you basically get another Firmino, but you can't do that. So it changes the balance of your entire setup. You've got to change it. You've got to play a different type of football almost, which unbalances everything else and knocks everything out. And it'd be, it'll be interesting to see how it pans out and, and how he sees it all happening. But I think this, I think all of this, you know, who goes and who stays this is where the, the transfer window going on until the 31st of August becomes a bit of a nonsense because the reality is Daniel Sturridge could play a couple of games in the first few weeks of our season and I could still see him being sold because we could still get someone in as a, you know, one of these last-minute deals and go, well, Daniel, you're not actually not needed now. And it could, because I think just all, you know, all things considered, he's much more likely to keep a Rigi, even talking about Joe is developing his, his houses and all that. He's more, more likely to keep a Rigi than he is Sturridge. For loads of different reasons, he's got a higher ceiling. He's got potential ahead of him. He's not on as big a salary. All of these things. So it's it's going to be unknown going into the season. Even just a quick one, hypothetical. Go to you first, Craig. Pure hypothetical. Daniel Sturridge uh, has had the, literally the career he's had for Liverpool, but at Arsenal. Same injuries, same goal to games. Has the same influence at the end of the season. Uh, for Arsenal instead for Liverpool last season and Liverpool simply have have got this hole in this squad where they haven't got a Daniel Sturridge they've got a Rigi they've got Firmino they've got Ings they've got Solanke and Liverpool are linked to buy Daniel Sturridge for 15 million quid off the back of the career that he's had 15 million quid but we're going to have to take his wages would you be excited by that signing or would you be thinking you'd do something else? <laughs> that's it I, I would be excited by the signing I'd be excited by the signing um, and that's probably that's probably one of the reasons that I don't want to see Daniel Sturridge leave because if if he does leave, what kind of player can we get 
for around the same money that we're going to sell him for on the same wages. Because you know, if you bring someone in that's uh, that has his ability, um, his injury record aside, I think you're you're spending Aubameyang money, um, and you're paying a lot more in wages than than Daniel Sturridge is currently on. Ian, I think yeah, when you phrase it like that, it, it, I'd have to agree with with Craig you'd, you'd absolutely be excited by that and I think Gibbo always said he's one of those players who, who puts a smile on your face if you know he's in the team or in the squad you're happy to see him that said if someone said to me Daniel Sludge was leaving but Aubameyang was coming in no it, it, I wouldn't bat an eyelid I think it's an interesting question because it's pretty much happened we've been linked with Theo Walcott a number of times in the past and People t- seem to be split on it, and, and even even when I stop and think about, because initially when we get linked with with Walcott, I go, oh yeah, fast score goals. But then I immediately go, it's a bit like this with Chamberlain, and and like this with Everton players who, who moan about that. You're like, we well, you can't even get in the, in their team. Why aren't you nailing down a position in their team every week? They're not they're not that good. And even when he's fit, like we we forget this with Sturridge last season. There were loads of times he was fit and still wasn't getting in. So there was something, whatever whatever uh, Klopp says, there was something that he was like, well, I'm still not going to go with him. I'm still not doing it. And there's something with Walcott where Wenger goes, I'm still not going to go with it. And Walcott's going, I want to play front boss. And he's going, hmm, I still prefer Giroud, you know. I st- he still yeah. gives me more. So uh, to answer the question, uh, it, it, it would be like signing Walcott now. I'd probably go, yeah, all right. I wouldn't be excited about my, it. Uh, my, my line on it is, is that I think that if that gap in the squad, and that's why it's an unfair hypothetical, if that gap in the squad existed, I don't think Liverpool would be trying to buy Naby Keita. That's yeah. my line. Yeah, that's it. They'd be trying to buy someone else. And that's why Sturridge could, in, in a really weird way, be one of the reasons why, why, why Klopp thinks, you know what, I'll just have a bit of a centre-mid luxury that I maybe don't need who come in and could really be a game-changer for me. And I'll make that gamble because I feel as though I could be well enough stocked up here. Yeah. And we go from there. And the other thing on the five strikers thing, from my view, just to sort of put that over, I, sort of, I read Sam's piece and I agreed with it on the one hand. But the other thing that wouldn't surprise me is... Not that it gets sorted out over pre-season, but it wouldn't surprise me that off Liverpool's five forwards, if one of them ends up going out on loan loan or is sold in January, mm. and at the first three, four months of the season, Whittles five into four, off the view of, I mean, might change it again next summer, boys. And that's mm. that's what I think you might see on that. Uh, in that, well, we haven't got to rush to make a decision. We're in control of our own destiny on this. We haven't got to feel as though we haven't got to do anyone any favours. It's very easy to say to, to, to a combination of Danny Ings, Divock Origi and uh, Dominic Solanke for different reasons. You're not maybe going to get as many chances as you might hope for the first three months, lads, but keep working. Well, I, I, that, that, the point on that, I think I, I might have made this last week, is I, it'd be interesting to ask Klopp whether he regrets selling Benteke. Because mm. he, he could have just gone, I'm going to keep hold of you, lad, because I might need you in the winter. And he, would, and he did need him. I think the other aspect as well is to think about in terms of what are those what are those players thinking? What are they saying? Are they going to the manager and saying, "Listen, boss, it's a World Cup year. I need more game time." So maybe that scenario, Neil, plays out where it gets to January and one of them's not seeing any game time. And they say, "Listen, I want to go on loan. It's a World Cup year. I want to be playing for me for me country." Whether that's Sturridge, whether it's Origi, you know, you could easily envisage a scenario where those conversations are happening because, as I say, players will want to play in that international tournament. Okay, um, the transfers as they currently sit. I think, Craig, there's an expectation of some movements across the next sort of seven days, uh, ten days. I want to talk about Liverpool's approach in general, which is really interesting. It's different. I think you can now properly categorise this as different to approaches that we've seen under other managers. I'm not expecting there to be a, a Wijnaldum from nowhere, this side of Liverpool getting the 
you're not getting Van Dyke, you're not getting Keita thing, which isn't what happened last season. Last season, there was still talk about, for instance, De Hood the day before Liverpool signed Eugenie Wijnaldum. That was that was an ongoing thing, and it is this this relentless focus, seemingly, on these two players. He wants these two players. Liverpool want these two players. These are the two players. It's we're going to try and buy these two players. It's it's, and that's something that we haven't seen before. It's quite refreshing, isn't it? Because. Um, well, you're saying that, Craig. It'd be nice to buy someone. No, I, I, shows no I, I say it'll be refreshing. <laughs> it, it's refreshing if we if we do end up signing them. Uh, I, I think, I think, yeah. Too too often in the past, we've uh, you know we've heard targets uh, in the press, and then suddenly our main target um, isn't available, or we aren't able to get him, and we go to our second target or third target. See that last summer, it, it didn't actually. It, it worked out quite well with us in that you know, Goza was the was the main target. We signed Mane. Happy days, um, and 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 we've said it before. It's just that it's the it's the shop that Liverpool are shopping in now, um, and and it's it's where it's what we've craved for the last, well, as as long as I can remember. Really, it's what we've it's what we've wanted. We wanted to be to be. Uh, we wanted to be in the conversation whenever the likes of Anambape or um, or the best centre back in the Premier League and so on. We wanted to be in, in and amongst it. And too too often during summers in the past, we've not been. We've been shopping on a completely different market. Um, so it's refreshing in that way. Um, ask me that same question on uh, the first of September and see what I say, Paul. Yeah, um, it's it's funny, isn't it? Because you can look at it. You can look at it the way Craig looks at it, and I. And I I am more in that camp that I'd rather we had our top targets and we just keep going at them and we wear them down and we get them and that's it. It's it's different if you get to a point where it's like, look lads, this is not this is just not going to happen, just go away. But it doesn't seem to be that that's the case. And there's there's been different talk on sh- on other shows about this, which I think is right. And I thought Ian mentions a point which I don't think has come up, come up enough when you're trying to buy players, which is it's a World Cup year. And that changes a lot of things because we're, we're basically saying, well, if we want Van Dyke, Van Dyke has to throw his toys out of his pram. But is there a thought in Van Dyke's mind that, that he thinks, well, if it was a non-World Cup year, I'd have done it by now. But the reality is top-level pros only get so many World Cups in their whole life. Does he want to play for Liverpool more than he wants to play in the next World Cup? And and Southampton know that they've got that as a, as a bargaining chip. They go, yeah, all right, okay, mate. You, if you want to play for Liverpool that badly and you won't go anywhere else, we'll just keep hold of you. And you won't play for us either. Or we we think that when we do pick you, you're going to be fully committed exactly. because it's a World Cup. Yeah, yeah you might do that for the, for a month, but then you'll start thinking, I want to play in this World Cup. Because someone's in your ear going, how old are you again, mate? <laughs> yeah. how, how many World Cups are left before you have to retire? Might might want to start booking your ideas up and playing. But, and then all of a sudden, once the window shuts, it, we, we did it with Suarez. This is the thing, and you talk about this a lot, and it's a big one, I think. You've got to look at it from both sides. You've got to picture it as if we were Southampton. What we did with Suarez and Arsenal, we were all delighted about. And it worked because he, he threw his toys out the pram. He wasn't very happy. And then Rodgers treated it brilliantly, which he doesn't get any credit for. And then a few weeks later, he was the best player in the league. So Southampton could be looking at Van Dijk and going, yeah, well, we'll just do that. And that's that's the problem you have trying to sign these players from these types of clubs in a World Cup year is that it's high risk. It is a high-risk strategy. The noises Klopp's been making suggest that there is a backup plan. We don't need to be overly concerned about it. And I think you're right as well in saying that if you're looking at these two players, there's only one that is crucial. So you only need one backup plan. 
because you don't need a backup plan to cater at all. Even if Joe were talking about this whole analogy, well, if you don't buy Kaita and you don't buy a Bamiyang, that's not a disaster. You've already got Salah and Mane and all the other strikers in in your squad. If you don't buy Van Dijk, you absolutely need a centre back. But in the meantime, we are going to buy Robertson by the looks of it. So I'm not I, I, a similar point to Craig. Actually, it you know come back to me on the first of September, but I, I'm not overly concerned about any of it. I th- I think we'll I think Kaita will be will be sorted within the next couple of weeks. And then you'll start hearing more noises about Van Dijk. Because of the persistence that Liverpool are showing, you can only you can only assume that they'll be in showing a fair amount yeah. of encouragement. There's a bit from of a, someone from somewhere. someone. There's yeah. a bit of a dance going on because you know clubs don't want to be seen to be just handing over their best players. That's fairly obvious. We would expect Liverpool to act in the same way. I've been thinking about the transfer in terms of the the actual amount recently, and there's loads and loads of chatter about you know is it too much? Seventy million for the centre half. Probably at the beginning of the summer, I would have been like, I tell you what, 70 million percent are off. That's, that's an insane amount of money. I'm beyond caring now. I just want the players in. If they're the players the manager wants, I want them in. And I want them in as soon as possible. Um, if you look back at, and we do kind of look back at some, some, some of the things Ferguson does because he's been so successful at United. When they go and sign Rio Ferdinand in 2002, he pays 30 million for them. 30 million in 2002 for the centre half is huge. You're going to see any United fan. It's was, absolutely was, bananas, was isn't it? Was Rio Ferdinand worth 30 million in 2002? You won't get anyone arguing it. He turned out to be one of the best centre-halves in the world. So 70 million, yeah, it's a lot of money. But I tell you what, if he goes on to even have half as good a career as that lad did over at, over at United, no one will care. No it's, one will care. And, and as I say, you know, that, that fee then for that footballer, he'd only just moved from Leeds for about 18 million two years earlier. That fee was huge. And people at the time were like, I can't believe he spent 30 million on the off. No one cares about it anymore. No one mentions it. It never comes up in conversation. Yeah, it's, 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 he's, buying the, he's buying the best players that are available to Liverpool in that position. So, you know, if, if, if it's definite upgrade on what we already have, then I don't, I don't care. Just get them done. It, it, there's an interesting one that Paul Tompkins does, which he, Joey, he's got his... Index where it links the and inflation, it, and it inflation yeah. it, it compares things to transfer fees, the highest transfer fee at the time. Have a look if you, if you haven't seen it. And someone asked that question the other day, and the likes of Ferdinand and I think Glenn Johnson, even when with those type of transfer fees, they're they're like the 90 hundred million mark now. In if you were to compare them like yeah. for like, so I, I am completely on board with Ian. I, I I couldn't care less if that's if that's who he wants. I, I, but the, it's it comes back to the point Klopp's making, isn't it? It's not about it's actually not about that money. In, in itself, Southampton don't want to sell Van Dijk. It's as simple as that. It might be a bit different with, with Leipzig where, where there's just a bit of a dance, but Southampton don't want to sell Van Dijk and they don't want to sell him to us for um, a number of reasons. Just dead quick, it uh, looks like Robertson will happen, Paul, uh, other than the Roy Hendo piece, though I think it probably is the Roy Hendo piece. Are you uh, you happy with that one? Would you have liked to have had a more high-profile left-back? Or again, is this, uh, ask me on September the 1st, in that if Liverpool spend... 35 million on Salah, 70 million on, on Van Dijk and Cater each. And then I go, yes, and they bought a left back for 8 million, 10 million quid. No, I, I'm, and it is just the Roy Hendo piece we discussed this at the weekend. I, I love that piece and it's brilliant. And again, if you haven't read it, you read it. It's, it's, it's brilliant. And, and it's, it's a perfect piece on how football fans behave. And we're all irrational and we're all a bit daft because the, the reality is, Everyone can go to me, yeah, we should buy Mendy, you know, we should buy Mendy from Monaco. And I go, I've never seen him play, you know. <laughs> so I don't know. And just because he's played for Monaco doesn't mean he's better than this lad at Hull. And it, it, I've, I think he makes the point, Roy makes the point in the piece that at one point, 
um, Ryan Britt Bertrand was getting linked with us and we were like we don't want Ryan Bertrand for 6 million quid we'll have, we'll have the lad from Spain who's just played in two consecutive Europa <laughs> League finals he looks boss exactly how did that turn out for everyone do you know what I mean and and even Neil and I discussed it at the weekend I just don't get the Kyle Walker thing if we'd have bought Kyle Walker for 50 million quid I'd be furious the, look look at his record everybody Every I keep seeing this thing of you combine him with Klein you've got the perfect fullback you haven't you've just got Klein with a bit more legs he can just run a bit faster he, he doesn't Kyle Walker doesn't create goals. He doesn't score goals. It's as simple as that. If you're paying 50 million quid for a fullback, I want it to be a lad who's scoring me 10 a season. That's, it's as simple as that. So I'm quite happy with an 8 million quid fullback who could actually be brilliant and we don't know. I think Neil's point there, when you look back at the at the business Liverpool have done, if it's if, if signing an 8 million pound left back has allowed them to go out and spend big on some of those other players we've mentioned, then broadly speaking, I've got no issue with it. I mean, He's not glamorous, is he? He's been at Dundee United. He's ended up at Hull. He looks decent. He's only 23, so there's loads of time for him to improve. He looks a good attacking fullback. I think defensively, there's one or two question marks. I think if he comes in, Milner's fullbacks Mil- ever. Apart from the ones where we go, yeah, he's crap going forward. And by the way, he, he ain't starting the season anyway. Probably, you know, Milner's probably going to be his first choice, but it, this gives him another option because. Let's be honest, Milner's legs will fall off at some points and there needs to be another option if you're going to play 50, 60 games. So it, it kind of makes perfect sense. So I think you, you couldn't get too angry about it. I think it's similar to what you said about the, the Chamberlain transfer, that as long as we get our, our, our priority targets, then Robertson looks like a decent signing. Absolutely. Um, but I think from the Moreno, uh, Burton uh, ordeal, I think we've all learned a lesson. That you know, signing the sign the lad with a nice Spanish name that's really attacking isn't maybe the best idea. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. we, we want someone who first and foremost is signed defensively and won't make mad mistakes in the Europa League final or a, or, or a, a League Cup final as well. Just someone that can defend. Someone that can defend. That's all I want. You're not going to get that. I'm just letting you know now. Don't, <laughs> don't get carried away you know, on Robertson on that. What, that regard. In saying that though, like from uh, from uh, from Roy Henderson's piece and some of the videos, he does look as if he's, he's, he's decent going forward. But what I mean is, first and foremost, he can defend. That's 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 the priority here with a new left back. I will. We will do fullbacks in the next few weeks. We've done strikers and midfielders the last few days. Fullbacks, you're never going to be satisfied with any of them. So you may as well just get <laughs> some lads. And there's there's basically about three fullbacks in the last 15 years of world football. People being able to go, yeah, he's sound. And one of them is Danny Alves. Uh, the other one's Fabarello, and he yeah, and he couldn't run. Uh, thank you very much <laughs> to Paul Cope, to Ian Ryan, and to Craig Cannon, uh, Andy Heaton for producing. It's been a fabulous Anfield wrap. Hope you've enjoyed it. Sports Social Podcast Network.